welcome back to the Rethinking Politics podcast. We're glad to have you here for episode nine, where we will be talking about is inflation, stimulus packages, and more specifically, the CARES Act that was passed a few months ago. As we look to discussing and potentially passing another one, seems like a, a good time to talk about some of these issues. Yeah, as the, uh, the pandemic continues, as the problems continue with no end in sight, despite changes in numbers and different things, it's time to address the stimulus and the impact as people are calling for a second one, as the second one seems likely. I've been reading headlines about when you can expect your your next check to arrive, even though it hasn't passed. And <laughs> those articles do seem interesting, don't they? Feel maybe premature. I mean, I guess at this point it is inevitable. I, I'm going to say that it, there's about a 100% chance of this <laughs> second stimulus passing uh, one way or another. One way or but another. It, but it is odd to be talking about when you're going to receive money from a law that hasn't passed. So in order to talk about this effectively, we'd like to rewind a little bit and go back go back to a few months ago when all of this started out. I know it feels like it just happened, but I mean time is time has flown by. I mean, you know, we're talking back in February and March of this year. <laughs> time has become strange it during has COVID-19. Become strange. I uh, the first little while seemed to go so slow. But at this point, this point it's the norm. Mhm. So when COVID hit, you know, a lot of a lot of bad stuff happened very quickly. You know, there there was a lot of there was a lot of panic, there was a lot of fear. There were a lot of businesses that were either shut down or not necessarily forced to shut down, but needed to shut down because no one was going there anymore. There were businesses that shut down out of out of a sense of caution. Um there were a lot of people who who lost their jobs, a lot of people were out of work, and the economy as a whole sort of ground to a halt, which obviously no one wants. Naturally, people were upset about this. And also naturally, the government officials, especially on the federal level and also on the state level, were very interested in doing something about this to, to fix it. And so very, very quickly, the federal government passed the CARES Act, which was a whole cornucopia of legislation. You know, everyone talks about the, you know, the $1,200 stimulus checks, the $600 a week, you know, add on for unemployment. But those were just two of the things that two of the things that happened in that legislation. In fact, you know, that legislation was about $2.2 trillion is their estimate because they won't know the total cost until it's all been spent. But that was their estimate for how much it was going to be. And of that 2.2 trillion, you know, only about 500 billion or so, once again, estimated was actually supposed to go to individuals, which is where that 1200 and that 600 are coming from is that 500 billion. You know, on top of that 500 billion, you know, they sent you know, they sent about 500 billion to big corporations, almost 400 billion to small businesses. Oh, about 340 billion to state and local governments as a form of bailout for the state and local governments, as well as some billions here and some billions there for a few other, a few other issues. And that's pretty normal for federal legislation that there are always going to be special interests who get a little something here and something there. But 
it was a whole lot of money, a a ton of money, if you think about it, you know, especially in terms of of how large the federal budget is. I mean, basically, it was the equivalent of 50% of the federal budget for the entire year in just one piece of legislation. (laughs) Yeah, it's high. It's high. And it is, as I'm sure you're familiar, it is above what the, the federal government takes in. We're not, we're not paying for this with, uh, with cash that we have on hand, unspent from previous years of plenty. Yes, no, this was not the- a cash reserve. This was not a reallocation of the federal budget. This is new money that had to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a, Ideally, obviously, if you're in a time of famine, it's you want you hope that you've got stuff you've saved from times of plenty when you can, and that is that's definitely the most effective way to pay for something like this. There were two underlying principles. There were two main ideas behind this legislation, and the first idea was that was the idea of of immediate and direct relief. You know, that, that they were trying to help those who needed money and needed it now. You know, and that's where the, you know, the $600 a week unemployment benefits, the, um, the money sent to bail out businesses and to bail out the state government. You know, it's, it's people who specifically have a need that needs to be filled. But then the other part of it was the idea to stimulate the economy with this large influx of cash, and people talked about that a lot. I mean, that's why they're called, you know, stimulus checks, because because people were sent $1,200 who didn't necessarily need them. You know, I didn't lose my job, but I was still sent $1,200, right? And, the, and that $1,200 wasn't because I needed it. It was specifically so that I would take that $1,200, spend that $1,200, and that would boost the economy. Right. You, they were people who were making as much as just under 100000 a year, who didn't lose their jobs, who were getting stimulus checks. Yeah, and, and, and obviously someone making $100,000 a year who didn't, didn't lose their job is, is okay. You know, they are not the ones who are <laughs> right. in need of welfare. No right. one's arguing Her- that. The argument was that it was to boost the economy. So mm-hmm. we so those are two very different ideas. The one idea of welfare for those who need it, relief, bailout, whatever you want to call it, and then stimulate the economy. And so in this discussion, we really want to focus on what it means to stimulate the economy. Because I think everyone understands what it means to bail out those who are in need. I mean, it's a very simple concept of, hey, this person lost their job, and so we're going to get them money so they can... Yeah, what people argue about in that aspect is is what's effective and what's not. They, yes. they they talk about what are the best ways to do it, what are the moral ways to do it, and those kind of things. Those are the questions that are related to welfare. Um, and they are good questions. Talk, and, and they are good questions. And we may talk, and we will talk about it at some point. But today, we'd really like to focus on what it means to stimulate the economy. That is a very abstract idea. And so the question, of course, becomes, you know, what is it? Because if we're going to spend, you know, two trillion dollars and a large chunk of that is going to be to stimulate the economy, then it should it should be understood and it should be a good idea. So let's let's break it down. Let's tear it apart. The first thing we want to distinguish in this conversation to help us think a little bit more clearly about it is the idea of inflation and the idea of stimulus. Now, inflation is a is more or less a constant in the economy at this point. 
And by more or less, I mean more. It's, it is a constant. In the <laughs> that phrase was that phrase is often used in meaningless ways, and that was a good example of it. it there's always <laughs> inflation in the economy at this point. Um, we always talk about inflation, and we think it means one thing, but that's not always the case. So, what inflation actually means is where we actually increase the amount of money in circulation. And we do that through a few different ways. And the ways that we do it are complicated and require an entire podcast episode in and of itself. But we'll try and briefly explain a little bit of how that works. The Federal Reserve is able to increase or decrease the pool of money in the United States. And that also gets into ideas like fractional reserve banking, which once again, we don't have time to talk about. But the important thing, and because no one actually can test that the Federal Reserve does this, the important thing is that through these processes, the Federal Reserve can increase the pool of money in circulation in the United States. And that's what they do. And they've been doing it, as Dan said, for a long time now. Right. If you see a general increase in prices, you may or may not be seeing inflation. And this is where there are modern, the modern definition of inflation, if you go look it up in the dictionary, you're going to find it talking about general costs. You're going to, it's going to say something like the consumer price of consumer goods goes up. That's inflation. That's not the definition that used to be applied to the word inflation. The word inflation used to be a very technical term limited to expanding the amount of currency. And by expanding the amount of currency, you cause a corresponding, but not proportional, not always proportional, increase in prices. And that's a, that An is important a important distinction. It's a critical distinction because you have, there are a number of things that can cause an increase in prices. You can have an increase in prices from a shortage in that good, right? If suddenly oil, there's a shortage in oil because we can't buy some from, from what other people are doing, that increases the cost of a significant amount of items in the marketplace because anything, anything that has to be transported goes up. And that's most of the goods, most of the hard goods, right? And, and that can make a big difference across time. And in small, in across small periods of time, it doesn't matter so much. But if you have a big increase that's going to be there for a long time, you're going to see uh, increases in price. And to call that inflation would be a mistake because inflation has a very specific cause. What you would say is that's a, that's a shortage of some kind, right? We're not, we're not able to get enough oil. What's left is going to be sold at a higher price. That's a, that's a fundamentally different process than what we're talking about with this kind of inflation. And it's only going to affect some goods and not all the goods. And that becomes incredibly important when you have a real discussion about inflation because they don't always follow one another. You know, you can have an expansion in the, in the pool of currency. You can have an expansion in the currency without a rise in prices and you can have a rise in prices without there being inflation. You know, these two ideas, although often are connected, are not always. And so it's important when we talk about inflation that we make sure we're talking about inflation. And you'll see a lot of, a lot of modern economists will just say a rise in prices, which, you know, at first glance seems accurate, but when you break it down, it becomes problematic. And the problem with that is it leads to misdiagnosis often. Right. And so when we talk about inflation here, what we are talking about is we are talking about an expansion 
in the money or the currency, as Dan said, and what the effects that has on the economy, but not necessarily a rise in prices, even though often they do go hand in hand. Yeah. And significant, significant amounts of inflation of expanding the currency is likely to do so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so right along with inflation, so inflation is one tool that the government uses to boost the economy, especially, you know, a lot of modern economists will talk about the fact that when, when the economy is in a slump, a depression, what you're supposed to do is increase inflation, and that's going to boost the economy. The other thing you do is you can do a stimulus package where you give money directly to the people so that they will spend it, and when spending increases, the economy is boosted, right? The idea behind both of these, because both of these, both inflation and stimulus, are designed to spur spending, to spur consumption, and that this will boost the economy. And the way inflation does that is a little less direct than stimulus. Stimulus, stimulus you can see how the people have the money and are therefore more encouraged to spend it because it's an increase in the money they have. Inflation does the same thing but in a different way because it changes incentives. You know, when you have inflation, the prices of things go up and it encourages people to buy something now versus to save and get it l later. So it discourages saving and encourages immediate consumption. So in the end, they both encourage the same thing. And the reason the economists want to encourage consumption is that they want to treat the economy like it's a big machine. And so it's like a car, for example. And so in order to speed up the machine, to speed up the car, you need to give it more gas. And that's that's an analogy that is actually used, that you know you give it gas, you get it, you, you have a well-oiled machine, and that money is in many ways the gas and the lubricant that keeps this machine money. I mean, keeps this machine going. It's <laughs> a Freudian slip. That this money keeps the machine going. And so by, by dumping more money in there, it can give it that, that little oomph that it needs to really kick that engine up and, and boost the economy and get us out of a slump. And the reason that inflation is relevant to this discussion is because in part because a stimulus is going to cause some some degree of an increase in prices, but more importantly because of how this is paid for. If you look at we mentioned earlier that the federal government is not is not sitting on some some surplus from previous years. <laughs> I'm sure if you follow politics at all, you're well aware that there is an enormous and growing debt um, in the federal government, which is which the implications of which we'll address probably another time. But that means that in order to get this money it has to be funded by debt. And you can do that in a variety of ways, but the, the preferred method and the method that's used almost always lately, because we don't want to incur for foreign debt, or so the so the argument goes, we don't want we don't want these things to be paid for on loan by other people, when you have an easier method, is to go to the Federal Reserve and get a loan from them. And the Federal Reserve as a as a private bank does you might think is sitting on the money. It's not. The private, the Federal Reserve is the entity that prints the money. And the Federal Reserve then prints the money, which is then written down as a, as a loan. So to do this stimulus, we've incurred several trillion dollars worth of inflation. Not inflation, but uh, there, the, these, these trillions of dollars are actually being printed which is increasing and, the currency, right? yeah, which so is inflation. We're, we're increasing the supply of money, of currency in the United States, 
by at least a couple of trillion dollars with this package. And when we right. say print, we don't almost always, it's not physically printing the money as this is a digital world, but the effects are the same. We're increasing the pool, the pool of money through the Federal Reserve, through a loan to the United States. This, and this amount of money is going to be in addition to whatever else the Federal Reserve is doing in terms mm-hmm. of quantitative yes, exactly. Easing. So this is not – this increase is in addition to this whatever CARES it is Act they normally do. This CARES is both. It is a form of inflation and it is a form of direct stimulus. It's actually a combined measure, which is why we want to talk about these two ideas and which is why it's convenient that those two ideas are very similar. So it allows us to talk about a lot of the same principles as we look at the CARES Act. In order to do this, in order to truly understand these complicated and nuanced issues that everyone talks about, but it's hard to understand, we need to look at a couple of underlying principles. The first idea I want to talk about, and the first maybe misconception that people have, is the difference between money and wealth. You know, everyone wants money because money is a thing that you use to buy things. But money, currency, dollar bills, you know, digital digital money in your bank account they're all ious they're all you know letters of credit in the truest sense for actual goods you know if you had billions of dollars but you couldn't actually use them to buy anything they wouldn't do you any good you know what i mean <laughs> you know kind of like people talk about you know if you were on a deserted island and it was just you but you happen to find pirate's treasure there, you know, whether it was gold, jewels, or whatever, that wouldn't do you any good if you die of starvation before anyone could rescue you. You know, and in, So really what you want exactly, to find is as rum. As we learned from Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> what you really want is rum. Which, highly highly flammable, flammable. You know. <laughs> and this is a critical distinction. As long as you think of, you need to think of money in, as something separate from wealth, because money may or may not translate into wealth, as Brad indicated. Wealth is a house, right? It's a car, it's clothes, it's food. You could have zero money and be extremely wealthy, and you could have all the money in the world and be extremely poor in terms of actual wealth. Sometimes people distinguish between uh, things like wages and real wages. And what they're talking about when they when they use those economic terms is they're talking about wages. One of them is talking about the actual monetary number. You have $100. Real wages is, is a measure that tries to gauge how much stuff X amount of money can buy. If I say I have 100 of whatever my currency is, that may or may not be useful mm-hmm. information. What you need to know is how much I can get for that. And that, that gives you a much better idea of what the value of the money actually yeah. is or what the what No, the and, it's, and it's very true. And you can see that, you know, when you look at exchange rates between countries, you know, it becomes a matter of how much stuff can this money buy because that's what matters. It doesn't matter if I can get, you know, a thousand, you know, rubles for one dollar. If I can't spend those rubles on more stuff, then it's not worth anymore. Right, right. And you, you get measurements often in, in government that are based on on wages, but 
you can find very different things if you start looking at the the actual real wages, the actual real value of the money and what it can. And so, how to. this ties in with inflation, you know, we I'd like to take it back to a state of nature example. You know, we've talked before about me and Dan in a state of nature, and we've talked before about when there's me and Dan and a few other people, and maybe there's about ten people working in this primitive market, and and these people we've been trading with each other for quite a while. But we feel like trade would be more efficient if we had some kind of currency. And so we've we've found a valuable commodity that we're going to use as as a currency. We've found a a limited supply of bottle caps that we're going to use as currency. <laughs> to, to pick, pick, pick a, random a random example, example that's not that isn't related to an video apocalyptic game. No. So it's, game. A, it's a non-video game based <laughs> analogy but i like it because it's weird you know it's so so we take these bottle caps and we use them as money we're just i mean they're just tokens as a representation and it works because we can't we have no way to produce any bottle caps in this primitive society they're almost impossible to to fake you know we have no metal works and so we can't make any more of these and so it works Right. If you were using like dirt yeah, clods, you have an immediate problem. You, make just, more, you just go make more of them. In, you go in to fact, the, <laughs> in you go fact, to the there's in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, there's there's a, a group of colonists on a new planet whose ship has crashed and they're trying to build an economy and they decide to use leaves as their currency. And everyone is so excited because they're they're like <laughs> stuffing their shirts full of leaves and they're like, oh, we're super rich. But the only problem is, is that they can't buy anything with those leaves because they're so they're so plentiful. The forest is full of them. <laughs> and so someone has the genius right, idea that all they need to do is burn down all the forests in the entire world and the value of their leaves will skyrocket and they'll all become <laughs> super rich. You That's are really gonna funny. Have to read I'm going to have to read that one. But, I've only read the first. That's no, it's brilliant, it, and it's perfect to illustrate the points you're making. That that's that's inflation yeah. and deflation, right? Increasing you're destroying currency. currency. You're increasing and the, the currency. And the most and, important part is that as you're looking and you're reading about these colonists, you're like, these people are insane because they have limited resources, and no matter what they do, whether they burn the forest or don't burn the forest, those resources stay the same. <laughs> the, the actual, actual stuff, stuff. Yes, their, their actual their, wealth their tools the change. things they took from their ship right what all of built that their labor yeah. those things are limited burning down the forests of the world is not going to help them or discovering a new <laughs> forest so now they all have more leaves any of that is just distraction from what's actually important and and that actually may work better than my ten people in a primitive market. We'll just use hitchhikers as the example. <laughs> hitchhikers Guide to the Galaxy everything. should be our example for everything. I don't know why we use other <laughs> analogies. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, and it's and and you could and that's a good example of how like any any tweaking of the currency does not affect the number of goods that are actually present. So if I've built a house, that house does not change in any significant way based on how exactly. many leaves I have or don't have. And if you have 10 houses in the community, how many leaves you have 
does not increase. Like if I own the house and nine of my eight, you know, I have nine other people owning the house and I think, man, I got all these leaves. I can get another house. Yeah. There's no other house to get. Like there, there's nothing that it has not, as you said, increased the goods there. We still have the fundamental problem of the house has to actually, the materials have to be gathered because our time is limited. It has to, it takes the tools to build it. It takes the things necessary and it's going to be a process that the amount of currency does not affect one way or the other. The only thing that's going to change is how many leaves yeah. I'm going to end up using. And, and obviously with leaves, you're going to, uh-huh. that's an impossible question because <laughs> yeah, it's just because it's a terrible currency. It makes my bottle cap currency seem amazing. No, and it's an important distinction because, because in the real world, in the current economy where we have a relatively stable currency, the more dollars that I have, the wealthier I am. But it's because we're not increasing the total pool of dollars. It's simply that of the existing pool of dollars, I'm getting more of them. And that's when it becomes useful to have more dollars. But when you increase the pool, it doesn't actually change the overall wealth. You can have more dollars and have a smaller portion mm-hmm. of the wealth. You can, you can have less. And again, with it, with, with de, deflation, deinflation, <laughs> deflation, uh, with deflation. And similarly with deflation, if you decrease the amount of currency, because your proportion of the wealth is increased, you can, your proportion of the currency has increased you can claim a larger proportion of the wealth. Which is not to say that inflation and deflation change nothing. They do change things. They do change things. But what they don't change is the amount of wealth. You can neither get wealthy or get poor just by changing the currency because it doesn't mm-hmm. affect the hard goods. But it can drastically affect who's going to yeah, claim For example, with that goods. burning down the forests, if they burn down all the forests and continue to use leaves as a currency, then the the people who, instead of working, spent all their time gathering up leaves and hoarding them, those people are going to come out on top while those who spent their time, you know, working. And so there can actually be a redistribution of leaves, but the overall value of the entire community, the wealth that the community has is not going to change which is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, right. It's not going to make more stuff, but it might change who gets what portion of stuff. Mm-hmm. And and that's a and everyone's heard of examples of hyperinflation. I mean if you haven't, let me <laughs> let me introduce you to it. You can inflate so much that that there's a complete collapse in what it's able to buy, which is what would happen if you Yeah, it would leaves. be hyperinflation. <laughs> you, would, you would end up with what's called hyperinflation. And hyperinflation means a lot more than the word sounds like. It does not mean you've got a lot of inflation. It means hyperinflation is a term usually reserved for the state when you have so much inflation that money loses all value. And there's there's examples of this in history where, or, or basically all value, you know, close to it. It becomes almost valueless to the point where people people will begin to use the paper for other purposes than buying mm-hmm. things because it's more valuable mm-hmm. as paper than it is as money, where you can have people spending millions in a currency to buy a loaf of well, bread. Well, no, and, and it actually gets gets worse than that. I was reading a Wikipedia article about 
about this the the income and they had to start using um math in order to represent the numbers you know instead of saying you know it's it's this many of trillions and billions they'd be like you know it's it's this to the fourth power was was how was the largest <laughs> bill you know because you had yeah, because the, they there uh-huh. some in some of the worst cases they were printing bills that had had 10 trillion on the bill like it was a 10 trillion <laughs> it'd be the equivalent of a 10 trillion dollar bill you're starting to waste and, ink you might as well just put and 10 there to the... there are some cases where the hyperinflation was so bad that the uh that the um the currency would would double in a matter of hours so so a yeah. dollar bill would basically lose half of its value in a matter of six or seven hours so so people uh-huh. would actually you would actually get paid every day because if you got paid in a week it wouldn't be worth anything. You would have stores. Stores couldn't print price tags because in four hours, those price tags would be way too cheap because the price is going to double again. And basically what it does is it it takes it to an extreme where, it, and as Dan said, in the end, it almost always results in, if not completely destroying the economy, crippling the economy to where it's barely functioning and you basically go back to an almost barter system because it's more effective right you have to you have to right because the the value you can still value determine what the value is of the hard goods you possess in comparison to Mm -hmm. others and so you you begin to exchange those in place of money which you're no longer sure the value of um and that and that makes sense as just a, a natural outcome of of rapidly shifting value of money the one one other note on this that's worth worth discussing is uh, you may you may think well well at some point you could that you could rapidly inflate and then you could stop or that you could you you might think of this relationship in pure in purely mechanical terms where you have x amount of currency and you have x amount of stuff and if you change the currency it's going to have a proportional impact on the value of money and thus on how much wealth these that money can purchase how many actual goods that money corresponds to and it it's not proportional that's that mechanical process is not i wouldn't say it's inaccurate but there are other factors which is the value that we perceive and when you combine that with it that's where you get where like i said you can get to the point where people just don't use the decurrency because they don't know what it's worth. It's worth little. They know it's worth little, <laughs> but they don't know what that could be. It might be, you know, and so they start to, to, to just not use it and to do other things. Or they start to, you start to assume that it's going to be, you try to get ahead of the expansion process. So you know that they're expanding. And so you try and spend it as much as you can right now, but you're also trying to predict how much it's going to expand tomorrow. And so that impacts the value that you assign to it today. Because at the end of the day, the value you mm-hmm. assign to money is subjective. And, it, and it's affected by this kind of more mechanical process of how much currency there is. But it's uh, but that's one aspect of it. Not uh, It's not the whole Now, there's one itself. more idea we need to understand in order to fully understand inflation and stimulus. Because a lot of people and a lot of economists will say, yes, hyperinflation is bad, too much inflation is bad, but mm-hmm. a little bit of inflation is helpful if it's done carefully, which of mm-hmm. course is difficult in and of itself. But assuming you can do it carefully, a little inflation is helpful 
because it spurs consumption and spending, which then boosts the economy. And so what we really need to do to understand this is address production versus consumption and what that means. You know, and, and the thing is, is we always see the consumption side of things. You know, we see, like Dan said, the house that we live in, the food that we have, all of these resources. And of course, those are the things that we want more of. And so that's where we focus our attention. And that's where the government intervention is usually involved is in that consumption. The problem is, is that the consumption is is the last thing to happen. And in many ways, it's well, it's always the inevitable thing to happen. But consumption in and of itself is really is nothing. It's just the things that we have. So it's not nothing. Consumption is everything, but it's not possible in and of itself. You obviously need things to consume. And without any product, there's no consumption. More products equals more consumption. You know, for example, going back to a state of nature, you know, if there's me and Dan and, you know, I'm, I'm fishing, he's got his berries. The more I want to consume, the more I have to produce. And if I'm not producing more or if my production is limited, it doesn't matter how much I'm encouraged to consume there's simply not more to consume, you know, and in fact, it goes even farther because if my focus is purely on consumption, I will never save. And you're like, well, why does saving matter? Well, let's say that, you know, I'm a fisherman and right now I'm catching the fish by hand and believe it or not, that is very ineffective. And so I'm <laughs> catching two or three fish a day and I'm barely getting enough to eat, but my whole goal is to consume and so I'm going to focus on catching as many fish as I can so I can eat as much as I can. But if instead of consuming, I take a whole day and I don't catch any fish and I actually don't eat that entire day, I go hungry, but I spend that time building myself a spear that I can use for fishing the next day. Now I can catch 10 fish instead of two or three. And by saving and by actually putting off my consumption, I'm now going to have way more. And the economy on a whole scale works the exact same way where we can actually take our money and invest it. And usually we're not physically doing the, the work ourselves, but we're taking that money and giving it to someone else so they can put it into better machinery, new businesses that are able to do things better and actually increase production so that there are physically more things to consume. Because at any given moment, there are a set number of resources, but at the next moment, that set number of resources is going to be different and it can either go down or it can go up. And if your focus is purely on consumption, that number of resources is going to go down over time and eventually you'll have nothing left if your whole focus is on consumption. But you have to invest and you have to save. Right, you get down to the basic level where you're, where you're literally doing what Brad was saying, where you are the basic level where you're just doing what's necessary to consume that day. Yeah, where you're fishing by hand when you... Uh, when perhaps your best bet would be to go a different route and find some way of saving an investment that's going to lead to and, more And that's why it's so dangerous to focus on the consumption instead of focusing on how are we physically producing stuff, you know, the, the actual production economy, and by increasing investment in those things that are beneficial, it's, it's, 
actually going to produce more so that we can consume more. Right. There's a, there is a balance that must occur for me to consume something long-term. So I have to, if you look at it the way that exchange works in society, someone has to spend a lot of time investing in the building of a house or a car. Those, those goods do not make themselves in a day. Those, the reward for certain industries and certain businesses comes many, many, many years later. The investment price is extremely high up front and the rewards are many years in the future. I, I'm always surprised when I see how long it takes for businesses to get out of the debt that they incurred before to they create the business. Before they start making a profit. Before they're actually making a profit that isn't just going off to, to paying off the, the initial investment. With big companies in efficient market and in efficient market industries, it's decades. And, and it's, it's crazy. It's crazy how long it takes. Um, but if I'm going to buy a house, I have to have saved, right? I have to have put away some resources. I have to have found uh, a way to, to acquire the resources. But someone else has to have invested massive amounts of time into building that house. And my consumption of long, of high quality goods that take a long time to produce has to be fueled by production. And this creates a, a dilemma. If you try and say everybody should consume and nobody should save, you end up in a bizarre world where but no everybody one wants, wants to, build to build the buy the house, but no one's building. And you get this, you get this strange type of consumption <laughs> that ends up being that ends up not being invested in the long-term production things. And the more this kind of spending is pushed, the more this kind of uh, marketplace is created, the less long-term goods we have. And, and the longer term it is often you know, the, that it takes, the longer the production process, the more it's harmed by this, this kind of thing. You can uh, see where we're going kind of with these, these underlying principles that when you apply the idea of wealth being much more important than money and production being and this obviously it makes you know makes perfect sense when you say it like this but when production is more important to how many things you produce than consumption then you can you can start to see some holes in the logic of using inflation and stimulus to boost the economy because because number 1 you know you have inflation and people think hey i have more money now than i do before in fact you know, when I talk to guys at work, they'll say, hey, you just reached this position and that is awesome for you and you're making this many dollars an hour. When I got into that position 12 years ago, I was only making this much. You know, you may be making $18 an hour now. When I got into that position 15 years ago, I was making $13 an hour. You guys are waking, making way more than I ever was. But when you actually factor in inflation, often we were making the same amount. You know what I mean? But but you don't mm -hmm. see it. It's so difficult to see that because what we see is the nominal dollars. You know, we think we have more, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we do. And in case of inflation, we really don't. We're either as good as we were or in some cases we're less off. I mean, we're less and in some cases we're actually less well off. And here's why. Because the one thing we haven't talked about yet is that people always talk about inflation 
as a universal thing that affects everyone the same. But the reality is, is that inflation never happens that way. Because the money is going to specific people. And the specific people it goes to are going to benefit at the cost of everyone else. Because when inflation happens, what actually happens is it's actually a form of redistribution of the wealth. So, for example, with this stimulus package, it's $2 trillion and it's literally being created from nothing. So we're adding $2 trillion to the economy. But we're not distributing that $2 trillion evenly across every single person. You know, some portion of it is getting distributed, those $1,200 checks. But that is a small portion of the rest of it, of, of all of it. You know, the rest of it is going other places, specific businesses. You know, $500 billion of it is going to these big businesses. You know, $350 billion is going to bail out these state governments. And so these individuals, these groups, these even states are going to benefit at the expense of everyone else. Because what's going to happen is that the prices across the board are going to go up. But we're not all going to get an equal amount of money. And so we are actually going to be at a net loss, even though we'll think we're better off because we nominally may have more money with that $1,200, we're really not. And if that doesn't, that, that sh <laughs> the proper reaction to that should be, wait, what? What do you mean? I just got $1,200. Of course I'm better off. I was going through a hard time. I, maybe I wasn't able to pay my bills or whatever, right? I, and I got $1,200 and you're telling me I'm, that somehow I'm worse off in some ways. And that there are some people that, that because other people got more makes them better off. That you're right to be skeptical Absolutely. of that claim because it's not what it yeah, looks like. On at the surface, all. I got $1,200. And, you know, like for me in, in my specific circumstance, you know, I didn't lose my job. So my income has stayed the same. But in addition to that, I got $1,200. And so looking at my, you know, my bank account, my, my tax returns at the end of this year, I'm $1,200 ahead. And it's hard not to see that as a win. But as we're saying before, if you look beneath the surface, especially over time, because at first, when I first got that $1,200, I was better off in that moment. But now let's wait three months, six months, a year. And as the prices of everything that I buy increase... I am not going to be better off and I may end up having to, the increases may end up even being more than that $1,200. The increases are guaranteed to be exactly. more than that $1,200 because other people ended up getting more than $1,200, right? Those people are going to be able to claim larger portions of the actual wealth than you. And that's, it. In, as we, we've talked about in a lot of other episodes, you don't want to think of economics as a zero-sum game. But this is not producing wealth. And so whatever amount of wealth there is, and it's not zero-sum, it's, it's not a static amount. It's a static at amount at, at the moment, right? In a single, in any single moment, you, you take a frame, a frame from the video, and it's still, right? <laughs> but, it's a, but the point is the proportion of wealth represented by the proportion of money is different 
and and is people's it's a delayed effect because as we mentioned before it's not just a mechanical process of how much money but it's people's perceptions of the money right and that will shift as uh, as there's more money invested and eventually the prices are you are going to get less of the proportion of the wealth than the people who have more and, dollars. And the important principle to understand here is that the nominal, that's why we talk so long about money versus wealth. The, the number of dollars that you have is not important. Just like with the leaves, having more leaves doesn't make you wealthier. You know, an example is, uh, is the big boom in the 1920s. You know, the economy was, was exploding during the 1920s and Everyone was better off, at least temporarily, right, before before the big crash. But from 1925 to 1929, when there was this huge growth, there was actually a drop in wholesale prices of more than 2% every single year for those years. So what that meant is that let's say, for example, that you're a worker in 1926 and you don't get a pay raise that year. And so in your mind, you your income is staying the same right but in reality what's happening is because the economy is booming and because prices are dropping your real income your real wage has actually gone up you're able to purchase much more than you were the year before or the year before that even though your wage is staying the exact same you know for example i mean like Right now, this year, my insurance at my work is going up 6%. The cost, the cost of my of insurance, insurance is, is going, going up 6%, 6% for this next year. And a large reason for that is the increase in prices. Increase in prices across the board in the medical industry means that they need more money from me to pay for the insurance. My wages are not going up 6%. It's, it's significantly, significantly less than that. So even though nominally I, my wages are going up just a little bit, my purchasing power is significantly less than it used to be. And that's what matters is even if, even if, for example, you were getting a 5% increase in your wages, which I am not, by the way, but even if you were and prices go up 10%, you actually have less than you did before. And that's what we're talking about. You receive that lump sum of $1,200 and feel like you're better off. And then prices go up over the next year so that over the next year, you end up paying $2,000 more than you normally would. You've lost $800 in real wealth. Maybe not in actual dollars, but you are worse off than you were before. All this is to say that the right way to look at this stimulus is not as free money as advertised, but is actually a redistribution because this is, this currency is literally just being added. It's, it's literally just inflation. And so the result is that it doesn't produce more wealth from which we could actually have $1,200 worth of additional stuff in addition to whatever else we had. But it just changes how we cut up the wealth that exists. It's, it is a redistribution fundamentally. And that I'm smiling. I'm <laughs> smiling as I say that. I just, I just picture the expressions of people listening, right? 
what it would take for someone to, to get someone to make that leap with us and say, wait a second, wait a second. This is, this is not working at all how it's been. Well, and that's, <laughs> and I, I understand what you're saying because it's, it's hard not to see. It's hard not to see it as a good thing. And that's why we're trying to spend so much time talking about these principles to help you see past what in many ways is, is an illusion is an illusion of wealth, is an illusion of being better off and see the reality of what's going on. And it can be very difficult. And it's also not a pretty picture what's going on underneath because it truly is a redistribution. And a lot of people might be thinking, oh, well, that's fine because they're redistributing it to me, you know, through the $1,200 mm-hmm. or the $600, mm-hmm. you know, add on to the unemployment. And and the reality is, is that number one, that's not the case because there are huge amounts of money that are going to pay other people that you're not getting any of, which, which means that you're actually not necessarily in the winning group. But even if you are in the winning group, it's still in the end going to come back and bite you in the butt because of the increasing costs. Is that really what's happening? is that we're we're getting short-term gains and and we're also getting we're also getting some short-term losses that are disguised but then on top of that everyone is getting long-term losses that no one is seeing and because of the fact that it's not a mechanistic process like it's not a one-to-one ratio on inflation and the effect of it on the dollar value it makes it possible that these kind of moments where we do this, where we accept this kind of, uh, these kind of stimulus things in this, this step in inflation, definitely problematic, definitely having negative consequences, but possibly even catastrophic because you never know when you've tipped the scales too far. You never know when, when, how much exactly this is going to impact things. This is not a science experiment. This is dealing with hundreds of millions of people's lives in ways that can have extremely unpredictable results. And that's what I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about one more thing is that not only does inflation have long-term costs that we can't see, but it does one more thing, and that's that it distorts the market. The stimulus and inflation both distort the market. Let me give you an example. I receive $1,200 right now. And that's $1,200 in addition to what I already have, right? So to me, that $1,200 feels like new money, new money and extra money that I didn't have before. So what that means, me as a player in this economy, is that I'm going to spend that money on things that I wouldn't have been able to afford before, right? I have a hierarchy of needs, right. right? So, you know, the first thing is, you know, I have, I have, I need shelter, I need food, I need these basic necessities. And if those are already being paid for with my current income, then I take this $1,200 and I say, oh, here are some things that I've wanted but haven't able, been able to afford. You know, maybe I'm able to get that new phone. Maybe I'm able to take care of this or take care of that, right? Which makes sense. It makes sense that I would do that. The problem is, is that when I do that, I'm not taking into effect 
the fact that my costs are going to go up later. My prices are going to go up later. Because really, if I were thinking about that, what I'd do is I'd take that $1,200 and I'd save it, knowing that I'm going to need it later on, right? Right, right. Even if that required you to make some now, sacrifices exactly. now. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you would want to, you'd be expecting more difficulty mm -hmm. ahead rather than that we're just going to get through this emergency and you can just spend this money. And then exactly. And that's the thing is that in my personal example, n not on a large scale, but just on a small scale, I spend the $1,200 now, then later prices go up and I don't have the money that I need pay for my basic necessities. But I have these luxuries that I don't need. And that's literally what happens. It's literally distorting the market. It's literally distorting how I'm using my own money because of this illusion. And so now I end up with luxuries that I don't need, but I can't pay for my basic expenses. And that's what's going to happen on a large scale and not just on a personal level, but also on a business level where people are going to spend money that in reality they don't actually have. And so they're going to spend it and invest it and use it in areas where they normally wouldn't. And it's going to distort the, the entire economy. You know, you could have a boost in phone sales, in furniture sales, in all these things. And so then we'll invest more money in these companies. <laughs> right, right. So people will be like, oh, this is where we need to be putting yeah, investors. And so you'll, will, yeah, yeah, you'll see the stock prices, stock will, prices go up will go up and you'll see. When really they shouldn't have been going up in the first place. And so later on, when that stops and they're like, wait a second. And now people actually restrict their spending even more because they actually had less than they did before, then the market's going to adjust right. back the other way and it's going to play havoc on the economy. I mean, that's literally what <laughs> happens where you see this boom followed by a depression because, because of this process. Right. You can think of this as an artificial way to create a boom. Uh, it's going to, as Brad indicated, it's going to lead to it's going to lead to people spending money on things that they wouldn't normally, which is and what they're not going to be able to spend more money on in the near future. And the result is going to be investment in these areas that's going to be malinvestment. It's going to be money put into places where it shouldn't. It's going to be expanded production of certain goods that can't that don't actually need to be expanded and actually probably need to be cut back. And that that will lead to a market correction in the future. And all of these things are are going to have an impact on your day-to-day -day life in, way, in ways that politics often mm -hmm. doesn't, yeah. right? Often we get angry about politics and we get upset about, we get upset about issues and, and causes that are important and can make a difference for people. This one, people are going to feel and they're going to, and it's going to hit them whether they understand it or not. Very important to understand. So really when you look at it, what we're looking at and what we're seeing is we're seeing skewed incentives that happen because of misinformation. You know, people are making choices based off of what they can see. And, and on the surface, it seems like everyone is winning. I get my $1,200. These people that I see who are seriously struggling because the economy was reduced and they lost their jobs, they're able to get benefits. Businesses right, are able to get benefits aspect. to keep the employees that they have. States can stay operating. We get money for the healthcare industry. And on top of all of that, my taxes aren't going up, you know, and so really it just seems like this fantastic 
win-win. You know, across the board, everyone is better off. And even from a political sp- yeah, perspective, yeah, it's people true, are better cause, off. Because we appreciate these politicians helping us out. And so they gain a significant amount of political capital. Right. They're never, they're never more popular than right after they passed one of these. And you're like, well, Congress is good for something, exactly. I guess. You know, you know, they debated it forever. There's partisan stuff shoved into it and whatnot. But, but there it is. We're getting, we're getting ours from the, from the and government. And the thing is, if all of that were true, if there really were no downside, that would be absolutely amazing. But, but if that were the case, then the government should be passing a $2 trillion relief act every month. You know, it's kind of like people are like, why don't you pass this next one and the one after that and the one after that, you know? Yeah, what's, what's the holdup here? Exactly. This is great. But the, but the reality is, and I think what everyone knows in the back of their minds but doesn't want to think about, is the fact that it is going to cost. And it's not going to cost the uber-rich. It's not going to cost the people who are able to react quickly to a crazy stock market and and protect their money in ways that you and I never could. It's going to cost, and it's going to cost the people. And, and that is the danger. And that's why we're so passionate about this, is because really when you look at it, what this is, is a giant illusion. It's really a lie. A lie that we are being fed and that we are, are eating up hook, line, and sinker. That we can get something for nothing and that we're all going to be better off. But in reality, what's happening is a massive redistribution of wealth. And that wealth, in most cases, is not going you know, from the rich to the poor. You know, it's not going from. No, it's, it's not. It's not. It's in this not. Case it's not Jeff <laughs> Bezos who's going to pick up the bill for this. It's going to be us, and more importantly, it's going to be those in the tightest of situations. You know, for example, those those elderly people who are relying entirely on their social security checks when prices go up and their social security checks remain the exact same. How are they going to handle it? You know, what are they going to be able to do to provide for themselves? Because they they are stuck. And every time we inflate the market, those people are always the first to lose. And they're not the only groups, but they are definitely a significant group who's getting impacted. And And there are a lot of groups like that. This is, this is, at the end of the day, an illusion. And it's an illusion in some ways in that, that I think uh, that most people honestly believe it. You know, they, they see the small portion that affects them, and they see that it's good. And, and it's good in, in nominal terms. Their, their money has increased, and, they, and they're grateful for that. And the politicians, even, uh, even for the politicians, I think it's an illusion I, I, uh, for most of them, at least most of them, maybe even all of them actually believe that this is doing all good and that the that whatever negative impact there is if any is minimal and that illusion is not true and as soon as you start looking big picture the way you just described it like wait a second this is good for everybody and for all of the reasons it's good now it would be good uh-huh. anytime 
You'll be good anytime. Why don't we do this every day? And congressmen have to have some sense that you can't do this every day. They have to have some, you know, even if it's just the, the sense of like, no, this is, this is extreme action or something. But once you realize that it looks that good, you know that you're not mm-hmm. getting the full story. You can't, for the same reason you can't go find a new forest full of currency and suddenly be wealthy, you cannot pull money out of thin air and suddenly be much better off and have everybody be better off. It doesn't work. It does not create wealth. And to think otherwise is to, is to not be looking big enough to see how big this story really is and to see how, what the implications of the big picture are on the check and it's, that and you're it's getting. And it's all behind the scenes, you know? Inflation. Now, all yeah. the costs are hidden. All the benefits yeah, exactly. are visible. We're, we're, we're looking at this and we see these short-term gains for some. We don't see, though, the hidden short-term losses for some. And we definitely don't see the long-term losses for all. You know, the benefits are in so many ways a lie. And then the fact that there are no costs, the idea that there are no costs is the biggest lie of them all. You know, taking it back to yeah. our analogy before, in so many ways, we are being handed these leaves and told that we are rich. And we are like those people who are like, hey, I've, I've got all these leaves. Look at how much better off I am before. And that's what's scary. And, and the fact that we're so eager for a second one of these, of these relief acts shows, as Dan was saying, that people are getting the idea of how fantastic this is. So why don't we keep doing it? And every time we do it, as Dan said, we get that much closer to, to completely, completely wrecking the entire, the entire economy. And, and that's exactly what we don't want. And sometimes we have to, we have to bite the bullet and accept that things are going to be hard for a little bit. But by artificially inflating the market, we're not going to make things better, you know, and we have to see past this lie and see that, that we are, we are literally being handed straw and told that it's gold. Yeah. It's a, and it's so hard to diagnose. There was a, there's a famous economist named uh, Keynes. You're probably familiar with him. It's hard to quote Keynes without wanting to discuss (laughs) it. But he was, he was whatever whatever I think of his opinions in general, he was absolutely right on this point. He was discussing how Lenin, quote, Lenin is said to have declared that the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. Lenin was certainly right. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction, and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. And the fact that not one, that's the end of the quote, I apologize, and close it. The fact that not one man in a million is able to diagnose it is probably accurate. And it's unfortunately accurate because it's what's happening here. Through that method, you can be handed money and it can be bad for you. You can be handed large amounts of money and you can be harmed by it. You can be less well off. And that's what's happening. That's precisely what's happening. And if, once you begin to see that, once you begin to see that, that it's about what your, what your money can actually buy, not how much money you have. That that changed the way you you can look at all kinds of processes. And that is in our government. purpose with this episode is is to convince anyone who will listen to not buy into that lie anymore. 
to accept the reality of what's going on behind the scenes and say, enough is enough. Enough is enough because you can be handed a bad hand in life, right? You can, you can get terrible cards and whatever cards you had became much worse when COVID-19 happened. And you can do something like this and you can make it worse. You can, you can have all of these, this money going around and, and feel really good about it and feel like it all looks good and it can end up being worse. And once you understand the principles behind it, that can be, that can, <laughs> you may have to tighten your belt and, and sacrifice and, and the wealth. And we're not critiquing the welfare aspect at all. That's a conversation for another time. But the stimulus aspect, the idea that, that, that you just need to go and spend money and that that's what this money is for. No. No, it is. It's. It'll always it's, cost more than it benefits us, and that is the lie, and that is, and, and that is, and that is the truth behind the lie. The lie is that we are gaining more than we are losing. Yeah, we discussed whether or not we wanted to go into where you know who the redistribution benefits in this. You can do that yourselves. You can go and you can follow the money. You can see who where the greatest proportion of the money and the bills actually are going. Those groups are going to end up with a larger cut of the wealth than they would have without this redistribution. The people with smaller portions of money that they're getting will end up with less of the wealth and they're gonna be harmed even in the short run, as Brad was saying. And in the long run, you have all of the cost of inflation. And if that's a, if that sounds like a dire message, say la vie, this is life, right? Or what's the, <laughs> it, it, it is a dire message. It's a dire message and, and it's one that it's it's one that we cannot make we cannot go forward in until you know we it is a dire it. message but there's there's also hope underneath because the damages that are being done are extensive but the solution is incredibly simple and all we have to do is see it you know in so many ways opening our eyes is a solution and once we do that it becomes a much a much easier road a downhill path to restoring the economy and and we hope we hope this has been helpful and we hope it it's opened your eyes and we will see you next week thank you for listening till next time